Section 3 of The South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 3. Volume 1. Chapter 1. The History of the South Pole. Part 3. Meanwhile, Armitage and Skelton had reached, for the first time in history, the high Antarctic inland plateau at an altitude of 9,000 feet above the sea. The relief ship, Morning, had left Lyttelton on December 9th. On her way south, Scott Island was discovered, and on January 25th the Discovery's masts were seen. But McMurdo Sound lay icebound all that year, and the Morning returned home on March 3rd. The expedition passed a second winter in the ice, and in the following spring Captain Scott led a sledge journey to the west on the ice plateau. In January 1904 the morning returned, accompanied by the Terra Nova, formerly a Newfoundland sealing vessel. They brought orders from home that the discovery was to be abandoned if she could not be got out. Preparations were made for carrying out the order, but finally, after explosives had been used, a sudden break-up of the ice set the vessel free. All the coal that could be spared was put on board the discovery from the relief ships, and Scott carried his researches further. If at that time he had had more coal, it is probable that this active explorer would have accomplished even greater things than he did. Wilkes's Ringgold's Knoll and Eld's Peak were wiped off the map, and nothing was seen of Cape Hudson, though the discovery passed well within sight of its supposed position. On March 14th, Scott anchored in Ross Harbor, Auckland Islands. With rich results, the expedition returned home in September 1904. Meanwhile, the German expedition under Professor Eric von Dragelski, had been doing excellent work in another quarter. The plan of the expedition was to explore the Antarctic regions to the south of Kerguelen Land, after having first built a station on that island and landed a scientific staff, who were to work there while the main expedition proceeded into the ice. Its ship, the Gauss, had been built at Kiel, with the Fram as a model. The Gauss's navigator was Captain Hans Russer, a skillful seaman of the Hamburg-American line. Dragowski had chosen his scientific staff with knowledge and care, and it is certain that he could not have obtained better assistance. The expedition left Kiel on August 11, 1901, bound for Cape Town. An extraordinarily complete oceanographic, meteorological, and magnetic survey was made during this part of the voyage. After visiting the Crozet Islands, the Gauss anchored in Royal Sound, Kerguelen Land, on December 31st. The expedition stayed here a month, and then steered for the south, to explore the regions between Kemp Land and Knox Land. They had already encountered a number of bergs in latitude 60 degrees south. On February 14th they made a sounding of 1,730 fathoms, near the supposed position of Wilkes Termination Land. Progress was very slow hereabout, on account of thick flows. Suddenly, on February 19th, they had a sounding of 132 fathoms, and on the morning of February 21st land was sighted, entirely covered with ice and snow. A violent storm took the Gauss by surprise, collected a mass of icebergs around her, and filled up the intervening space with flows, so that there could be no question of making any way. They had to swallow the bitter pill, and prepare to spend the winter where they were. Observatories were built of ice, and sledge journeys were undertaken as soon as the surface permitted. They reached land in three and a half days, and there discovered a bare mountain about 1,000 feet high, 50 miles from the ship. The land was named Kaiser Wilhelm II Land, and the mountain, the Gaussberg. They occupied the winter in observations of every possible kind. 
The weather was extremely stormy and severe, but their winter harbor under the lee of the great stranded bergs proved to be a good one. They were never once exposed to unpleasant surprises. On February 8, 1903, the Gauss was able to begin to move again. From the time she reached the open sea until her arrival at Cape Town on June 9th, scientific observations were continued. High land had been seen to the eastward on the bearing of Wilkes's termination land, and an amount of scientific work had been accomplished of which the German nation may well be proud. Few Antarctic expeditions have had such a thoroughly scientific equipment as that of the Gauss, both as regards appliances and personnel. The Swedish Antarctic expedition under Dr. Otto Nordenskold left Gothenburg on October 16, 1901, in the Antarctic commanded by Captain C. A. Larsen, already mentioned. The scientific staff was composed of nine specialists. After calling at the Falkland Islands and Staten Island, a course was made for the South Shetlands, which came into sight on January 10, 1902. After exploring the coast of Louis-Philippe Land, the ship visited Weddell Sea in the hope of getting southward along King Oster II Land, but the ice conditions were difficult, and it was impossible to reach the coast. Norton Skold and five men were then landed on Snow Hill Island, with materials for an observatory and winter quarters and the necessary provisions. The ship continued her course northward to the open sea. The first winter on Snow Hill Island was unusually stormy and cold, but during the spring several interesting sledge journeys were made. When summer arrived, the Antarctic did not appear, and the land party were obliged to prepare for a second winter. In the following spring, October 1903, Norton Skold made a sledge journey to explore the neighborhood of Mount Haddington, and a closer examination showed that the mountain lay on an island. In attempting to work round this island, he one day stumbled upon three figures, doubtfully human, which might at first sight have been taken for some of our African brethren straying thus far to the south. It took Nordenskold a long time to recognize in these beings Dr. Gunnar Andersen, Lieutenant Deuce, and their companion during the winter, a Norwegian sailor named Grunden. The way it came about was this. The Antarctic had made repeated attempts to reach the winter station, but the state of the ice was bad, and they had to give up the idea of getting through. Andersen, Deuce, and Grunden were then landed in the vicinity, to bring news to the winter quarters as soon as the ice permitted them to arrive there. They had been obliged to build themselves a stone hut in which they had passed the winter. This experience is one of the most interesting one can read of in the history of the polar regions. Badly equipped as they were, they had to have recourse, like Robinson Crusoe, to their inventive faculties. The most extraordinary contrivances were devised in the course of the winter, and when spring came, the three men stepped out of their hole, well and hardy, ready to tackle their work. This was such a remarkable feat that everyone who has some knowledge of polar conditions must yield them his admiration, but there is more to tell. On November 8th, when both parties were united at Snow Hill, they were unexpectedly joined by Captain Irizar of the Argentine gunboat Uruguay and one of his officers. Some anxiety had been felt owing to the absence of news of the Antarctic, and the Argentine government had sent the Uruguay to the south to search for the expedition. But what in the world had become of Captain Larson and the Antarctic? This was the question the others asked themselves. The same night, it sounds almost incredible, there was a knock at the door of the hut, and in walked Captain Larson with five of his men. They brought the sad intelligence that the good ship Antarctic was no more. The crew had saved themselves on the nearest island while the vessel sank, severely damaged by ice. They, too, had had to build themselves a stone hut and get through the winter as best they could. They certainly did not have an easy time, and I can imagine that the responsibility weighed heavily on him who had to bear it. One man died, the others came through it well. 
Much of the excellent material collected by the expedition was lost by the sinking of the Antarctic, but a good deal was brought home. Both from a scientific and from a popular point of view, this expedition may be considered one of the most interesting the South Polar regions have to show. We then come to the Scotsman, Dr. William S. Bruce, in the Scotia. We have met with Bruce before, first in the Bolina in 1892, and afterwards with Mr. Andrew Coates in the Spitzbergen. The latter voyage was a fortunate one for Bruce, as it provided him with the means of fitting out his expedition in the Scotia to Antarctic waters. The vessel left the Clyde on November 2, 1902, under the command of Captain Thomas Robertson of Dundee. Bruce had secured the assistance of Mossman, Rudmos Brown, and Dr. Pyrie for the scientific work. In the following February the Antarctic Circle was crossed, and on the 22nd of that month the ship was brought to a standstill in latitude 70 degrees, 25 minutes south. The winter was spent at Laurie Island, one of the South Orkneys. Returning to the south, the Scotia reached, in March 1904, latitude 74 degrees, 1 minute south, longitude 22 degrees west, where the sea rapidly shoaled to 159 fathoms. Further progress was impossible, owing to ice. Hilly country was sighted beyond the barrier and named Coatsland after Bruce's chief supporters. In the foremost rank of the Antarctic explorers of our time stands the French savant and yachtsman, Dr. Jean Sarcot. In the course of his two expeditions, of 1903 to 1905 and 1908 to 1910, he succeeded in opening up a large extent of the unknown continent. We owe to him a closer acquaintance with Alexander I land, and the discovery of Loubet, Fallières, and Charcot lands is also his work. His expeditions were splendidly equipped, and the scientific results were extraordinarily rich. The point that compels our special admiration in Charcot's voyages is that he chose one of the most difficult fields of the Antarctic zone to work in. The ice conditions here are extremely unfavorable, and navigation in the highest degree risky. A coast full of submerged reefs and a sea strewn with icebergs was what the Frenchman had to contend with. The exploration of such regions demands capable men and stout vessels. Sir Ernest Shackleton. The name has a brisk sound. At its mere mention we see before us a man of indomitable will and boundless courage. He has shown us what the will and energy of a single man can perform. He gained his first experience of Antarctic exploration as a member of the British expedition in the Discovery under Captain Scott. It was a good school. Scott, Wilson, and Shackleton formed the Southern Party, with the highest latitude as their goal. They reached 82 degrees, 17 minutes south, a great record at that time. Being attacked by scurvy, Shackleton had to go home at the first opportunity. Shortly after his return, Shackleton began to make active preparations. Few people had any faith in Shackleton. Wasn't it he who was sent home from the discovery after the first year? What does he want to go out for again? He has shown well enough that he can't stand the work. Shackleton had a hard struggle to find the necessary funds. He left England unheeded and loaded with debts in August 1907, on board the Nimrod, bound for the South Pole. With surprising frankness he declared his intention of trying to reach the Pole itself. So far as I know, he was the first who ventured to say straight out that the pole was his object. This hearty frankness was the first thing that struck me, and made me look more closely at the man. Later on I followed his steps with the greatest interest. The expedition, unnoticed when it left England, was soon forgotten. At most, people connected the name of Shackleton with the rank of Lieutenant R.N.R., and the months went by. Then suddenly came a piece of news that made a great stir. It was in the latter half of March, 1909. The telegraphic instruments were busy all over the world. Letter by letter, word by word, they ticked out the message. 
until it could be clearly read that one of the most wonderful achievements of polar exploration had been accomplished. Everyone was spellbound. Was it possible? Could it be true? Shackleton, Lieutenant R.N.R., had fought his way to latitude 88 degrees, 23 minutes south. Seldom has a man enjoyed a greater triumph. Seldom has a man deserved it better. As the details of Sir Ernest Shackleton's expedition will be fresh in the minds of English readers, it is unnecessary to recapitulate them here. A few points may, however, be noted, for comparison with the Fram's expedition. The plan was to leave New Zealand at the beginning of 1908, and go into winter quarters on the Antarctic continent with the necessary provisions and equipment, while the vessel returned to New Zealand, and came back to take off the land party in the following year. The land party that wintered in the south was divided into three. One party was to go eastward to King Edward VII land and explore it. The second was to go westward to the South Magnetic Pole, and the third southward toward the Geographical Pole. In the plan submitted to the Royal Geographical Society, Shackleton says, I do not intend to sacrifice the scientific utility of the expedition to a mere record-breaking journey, but say frankly all the same, that one of my great efforts will be to reach the southern geographical pole. It was further intended that the Nimrod should explore Wilkes Land. As draft animals, Shackleton had both ponies and dogs, but chiefly ponies. The dogs were regarded more as a reserve. Shackleton's experience was that the ice barrier was best suited for ponies. They also took a motor-car, besides the usual equipment of sledges, ski, tents, etc. Leaving Lyttelton on January 1, 1908, the Nimrod reached the ice pack on the 15th, and arrived in the open Ross Sea in latitude 70 degrees, 43 minutes south, longitude 178 degrees, 58 minutes east. The Ross barrier was sighted on January 23rd. The original intention was to follow this, and try to land the shore party in Barrier Inlet, which was practically the beginning of King Edward VII land, but it was found that Barrier Inlet had disappeared, owing to miles of the barrier having calved away. In its place was a long, wide bay, which Shackleton named the Bay of Wales. This discovery determined him not to attempt to winter on the barrier, but on solid land. At this part of the voyage the course of the Nimrod coincided very nearly with that of the Fram on her second outward trip. After an unsuccessful attempt to reach King Edward VII land, Shackleton turned to the west and took up his winter quarters on Ross Island in McMurdo Sound. The southern party, composed of Shackleton, Adams, Marshall, and Wilde, started on October 29, 1908, with four sledges, four ponies, and provisions for 91 days. On November 26, Scott's farthest south, 82 degrees, 17 minutes south, was passed. By the time latitude 84 degrees was reached, all the ponies were dead, and the men had to draw the sledges themselves. They were then faced by the long and difficult descent of Beardmore Glacier, and it was not until 17 days later that they came out on the high plateau surrounding the pole. At last, on January 9, 1909, they were compelled to return by shortness of provisions, having planted Queen Alexandra's flag in latitude 82 degrees, 23 minutes south, longitude 160 degrees east. Everyone who reads Shackleton's diary must feel a boundless admiration for these four heroes. History can scarcely show a clearer proof of what men can accomplish when they exert their full strength of will and body. These men have raised a monument, not only to themselves and their achievement, but also to the honor of their native land and the whole of civilized humanity. Shackleton's exploit is the most brilliant incident in the history of Antarctic exploration. The distance covered out and back was 1,530 geographical miles. 
The time occupied was 127 days, 73 days out and 54 days back. The average daily march was about 12 miles. Meanwhile, the other party, composed of Professor David, Mawson, and McKay, had set off to determine the position of the South Magnetic Pole. They had neither ponies nor dogs, and had therefore to depend solely on their own powers. It seems almost incredible, but these men succeeded in working their way on foot over sea ice and land ice, cracks and crevasses, hard snow and loose snow, to the magnetic pole, and making observations there. What was better still, they all came back safe and sound. The total distance covered was 1,260 geographical miles. It must have been a proud day for the two parties of the expedition when they met again on the deck of the Nimrod, and could tell each other of their experiences. More than any of their predecessors, these men had succeeded in raising the veil that lay over Antarctica. But a little corner remained. End of section three. End of chapter one.